Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director of BCLT. And today our topic is the resurgent interest in the intersection of patents and antitrust. We have two leading experts with us today from the Tensegrity Law Firm, Samantha Jamison and Aaron Nathan. Welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, you know, I've spent my, my life doing, doing patent litigation, and when it came to the, the intersection of patents and antitrust, it was always interesting, but it only seemed relevant to a few select people and in just a few select occasions. It seems to be changing now. So what's happening that's making this an important topic today? That's a great question, Wayne. So uh, from our perspective, the intersection of patents and antitrust really holds a, a number of pitfalls and opportunities for practitioners and market participants alike. If you're defending against allegations of patent infringement, it's worth having litigation counsel who are well enough versed in these issues to know whether they apply in your case and to use them to your advantage if they do. And if you're asserting patent infringement or representing a party who is, it's equally important to understand the antitrust issues that can arise so that you can avoid these pitfalls, hopefully avoid seeing those kinds of claims asserted against your client, and so that you know how to deal with them if they are asserted. Now, as you alluded to, this is not the most common thing in patent infringement setting. It's non-standard, but it does arise repeatedly throughout the years, and it has arisen a number of times in recent years. And in an antitrust climate that is relatively pro-enforcement, uh, it becomes especially important to understand the different ways in which antitrust claims can arise in the context of patent infringement litigation. It's an area that sometimes gets overlooked, but practitioners in both fields should know enough about the other field and how the two fields intersect to recognize and address these issues when they come up. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that there may be a, a shift toward pro-enforcement, which is why people need to know about this today. So what are the ways that patent litigation can become part of an antitrust claim? There are actually a number of different ways an alleged antitrust violation can arise in the context of patent litigation. Without giving an exhaustive list, we can say it's a complicated topic, largely because the First Amendment generally protects government petitioning activity, including patent prosecution and patent lawsuits. There are a number of relatively well-known areas where antitrust claims can arise. You can have claims based on misconduct in the prosecution of later asserted patents and claims based on sham assertions of infringement. In those cases, the normal First Amendment immunity does not apply. You also have so-called pay-for-delay cases, where an accused infringing generic drug company essentially agrees to delay its plans to compete with the patented brand. Aaron, do you want to address some of the other ways? Sure. So... Another interesting and developing area where claims arise from time to time is where otherwise immune litigation activity becomes part of a claim predicated on some other or broader alleged antitrust violation. So one example of this comes up when there are allegations of improper activities in the context of a standard setting body, such as falsely promising to license technology adopted in the standard on FRAN terms only to turn around and seek non-FRAN royalties, including through patent litigations. The actions before the standards body are not First Amendment immune activity, and those claims can proceed. And 
Another such circumstance is when it is alleged that the acquisition of patents in a transaction between different commercial entities results in reduced competition in a market or as part of an attempt to monopolize or of actual monopolization of a market. An acquisition is not a First Amendment protected act and so is not immune, but then litigation involving the acquired patents can become part of the claim as well. Well, I think that's actually worth a, a little bit more, more time on this particular topic because you know people kind of wave their hands and say, look, patent litigation protected by the First Amendment, it's this, this protected right. And you've given a couple examples here, but I think it's worth really really driving that, that point a little bit further on patent litigators can get themselves in trouble. I mean, essentially, Wayne, I think you're asking, look, how is it really possible that patent litigation can really become part and parcel of an antitrust claim without triggering a First Amendment immunity that gets the whole case thrown out? That's a key issue here. And I mean, just to kick that off, uh, for cases where the underlying antitrust issues not from the prosecution or the assertion of the patent itself as such, but the patent assertion is related to some other act, that's the answer. There's a predicate non-First Amendment protected act, like an acquisition, that is alleged to be an antitrust violation. And then once that's been established, the litigation itself can also count. Uh, Samantha, do you want to say more about this? Sure. The, the courts take different approaches to this analysis. But what they have in common is that there is a predicate antitrust violative act, either an act before the standards body or an acquisition. And then the litigation is either alleged to be part of the substantive violation or at least a part of the harm that flows from that violation. An example of this analysis where the litigation itself was treated as part of the substantive violation is the Microsoft Mobile versus InterDigital case which took the approach that litigation conduct was not immune when it was part of an overall anti-competitive scheme, regardless of whether the litigation was a sham. The interdigital court explained that, quote, before otherwise protected litigation can be part of an anti-competitive scheme claim, the court must first find that the other aspects of the scheme independently produce anti-competitive harms. And so, quote, upon so concluding, the court should ask whether the accused patent litigation was causally connected to these anti-competitive harms. The suits to enforce the standard essential patents were recognized in InterDigital as part of the way the alleged anti-competitive scheme was accomplished. And so those suits were causally connected and properly included in an anti-competitive scheme allegation. InterDigital noted that the entire scheme was ineffective without the threat of litigation. Now that is the more liberal approach to including actual litigation, which is normally immune under the First Amendment as part of the antitrust violation, regardless of whether or not the litigation is a sham. The more conservative approach is reflected in the Amphistar Pharmaceuticals versus Momenta Pharmaceuticals decision from the First Circuit. There, the court allowed that a lawsuit could constitute part of the harm caused by actions that in themselves already constituted an antitrust violation. But the lawsuit, quote, cannot itself be the antitrust violation. The court in Amphistar explained that, quote, the mere existence of a lawsuit does not retroactively immunize prior anti-competitive conduct. So as the, the typical patent litigator that's doing due diligence, what should they be looking for in these types of situations? You wanna be looking for 
things either about the origin and derivation of the ownership of these patents vis-a-vis -vis other patents that were already also held by the entity that's asserting them, or, uh, or and I should say, you want to be looking for the nature of the, um, the asserting entity, the asserting commercial entity uh, in the markets downstream where that entity competes in case there are what are typically referred to in antitrust uh, parlance, uh, vertical uh, merger concerns about how that company came to acquire those patents. I mean, I can say a bit more about this. There, there's an old case coming out of the 10th circuit called Kobe versus Dempsey pump. And in that case, the court addressed an antitrust theory where quote, every important patent found its way into a patent pool where the number of patents was given quote, wide publicity. And it was allegedly impossible to avoid infringement. And the litigation was quote, part of the original plan to nip a competitive threat in the bud. Now, Kobe recognized that patent pools that, quote, effect a restraint of trade or create monopolies, if designed for that purpose, are violations of the law. Now, other more recent cases have included claims under Section 7 of the Clayton Act that the effect of an acquisition involving patents has been to substantially lessen competition or to tend to create monopoly. And likewise, uh, such claims have been alleged under the Sherman Act, but the core idea under these claims is that there's either something about the combination of these different patents from different sources under one owner, or something about the nature and the role in a market of the acquiring company, or both, that gives rise to an antitrust concern. Samantha, do you want to say anything more about that? Yes. Uh, it's also important to understand that for purposes of analyzing an acquisition, Patents are assets like any other asset, and they can be scrutinized just as any other asset can. But of course, the economic effect of patents can be very different than that of other types of assets. So the theories of why a patent acquisition does or does not harm competition need to take that into account. Well, let me back up just to this idea about markets and what a market definition would be in patents, because I think for those that do patent litigation that maybe are stuck a little bit on the, the First Amendment piece, it's hard to see that patents are actually a market. So in the antitrust world, um, how are patents being lumped into a market definition? Market definition is a frequent pitfall in bringing antitrust claims and anyone defending against an antitrust claim involving patents will likely focus substantial energy on showing the plaintiff's market definition doesn't work. Um, there may be product markets where the patents have influence, or there are markets for the licensing of the patents themselves that are described as technology markets. The Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission guidelines for the licensing of intellectual property explain that quote, technology markets consist of the intellectual property that is licensed and its close substitutes. That is, the technologies or goods that are close enough substitutes to constrain significantly the exercise of market power with respect to the intellectual property that is licensed. So the most basic way to understand a technology market is that these are the patents that cover or are alleged to cover the different ways of doing or making a given thing, the different ways that are suitable substitutes for each other. Aaron, do you wanna say more about this? 
Sure. So just to further illustrate this point, if you have two ways to make a given type of product, way one and way two, and they're both separately patented, and the owner of the way one patent buys the owner of the way two patent, the idea here is that you can analyze the effect on competition of that consolidation of those two alternative patents. So you can analyze the effect on competition for licensing technologies that you can use to make the type of product in question. That's the technology market. And note that when you're talking about the technology market, this involves thinking about the accused infringer and would-be licensee as a customer in that market for licensing of those kinds of patents. And it also involves thinking about the right to use those patents as a kind of economic input for the downstream products that the would-be licensee and accused infringer wants to make. But you can also analyze the effect on competition for the products of that type uh, that use those patents in question. And that's the downstream product market it's said to be downstream from the technology market, which is upstream of it. Uh, so I'll summarize one of the examples from the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission's guidelines for the licensing of intellectual property, uh, where they describe two firms that independently develop different patented processes to manufacture the same off-patent drug. The two firms then announce plans to jointly manufacture the drug and assign their manufacturing processes uh, to one uh, new manufacturing venture. Now, to delineate the technology market, one could identify the other technologies to make the drug evaluate their effectiveness and cost. And one would then also consider the extent to which competition from other drugs that are substitutes for the drug in question would limit the ability of a hypothetical monopolist to raise the price of a license on the technology that's owned by those two firms. Well, let me try to put it together for the, the patent litigators out there. So the best advice that you can give any patent litigator is since this issue could even be on the table, you need to go find an antitrust specialist. But I worry that people aren't sensing the issues uh, on the patent side. So if you were talking to the patent litigators or the patent licensing team, what takeaways would you want them, want them to have? First off, just recognize that this is a challenging and complex area of law where really two different challenging and complex areas of law are intersecting. And from a patent defendant perspective, you want to recognize that this is a real potential counter that you can try to marshal against certain types of infringement allegations and it's worth careful study. Uh, from a patent plaintiff perspective, it's a real concern that deserves attention in the context of lawsuits, but also in the context of transactions that involve patent rights. And you're gonna want to check off your list not just the kind of conventional types of patent-based antitrust claims where there's no first immu amendment immunity for the, for the patent-related activity. So when you're uh, uh, seeing a, an antitrust claim arising out of misconduct before the patent office, arising out of true sham assertions of infringement that are objectively baseless and brought in bad faith, uh, but you're also going to want to check off your list, where do these patents come from? Uh, what were the likely effects on competition of these patents being put together with whatever other patents, the patent assertion, the company that's, that's asserting the patents um, uh, has, and, um, and also what effect on any downstream business of that company did the acquisition of those patents have if they're acquired? Um, that's, uh, those, are, those are some of the, some of the key 
um, key indicators that you're going to want to look for. So really, essentially, what you need is for antitrust lawyers and patent lawyers alike to be aware enough of the circumstances where the other area of law can influence their own. I agree. And, and there can also be inherent tension between positions that a party may want to take in a patent dispute and positions that the same party may want to take in a related antitrust dispute. And so that really highlights the value of understanding both areas of law and, and forming a strategy involving both patent law and antitrust law at the outset. So I think that the, the last thing I'd love to, to cover and expose people to are, are the disputes between the patent lawyers and the antitrust lawyers on how the case should be developed. Those can be pretty, pretty sharp at some points in time, I understand. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's between the, between the lawyers, but there, what Samantha was just alluding to there is that there's sort of inherent tension among the issues. Um, I mean, I'd be happy to give you an example of that. Uh, it's, it's pretty typical um, when you're trying to define a market in an antitrust context, part of what you're trying to do is exclude the possibility that there are suitable substitutes that you haven't taken account of. Now, when the, that, that's something, if, if, if you can show that there are many other suitable substitutes out there that haven't been taken account, that's a strong attack on, on, on the antitrust plaintiff's market definition. Now, if the antitrust plaintiff is also the patent defendant, uh, and, and if the antitrust defendant is also the pat patent plaintiff, then you have a, an area of patent law that comes into play as well, which is damages. And of course, as, as you know, if you're in a patent case and you're defending against a patent case, you're, uh, one of the common strategies is to point to lots of other significant number of substitutes that are available to the patent in order to argue that the patent is not worth as much as the plaintiff says it is. Now, th those, two, those two positions can be in immediate tension. And so you have to think really carefully about what your position is going to be in, in a litigation involving both issues. We've got a good list of, of takeaways for, for practitioners, and I appreciate uh, both of you helping us work through this really kind of difficult intersection of two very difficult areas of law. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne.